0: Welcome back to the program. The past year has seen us engaged in a kind of celebration of the passage of the Civil Rights Act, the March on Washington and Freedom Summer, all seminal events in the amazing history of the Civil Rights Movement. But what we sometimes forget is that the movement itself, mostly because of its scope and inclusiveness, started a revolution, one that took up opposition to Vietnam, the fight for social and economic justice, and the movement beyond nonviolence for more than just public accommodation but the struggle for real political, social, and economic power. At the forefront of that effort was Stokely Carmichael, a kind of bridge between the nonviolence of Dr. King, the anger of Malcolm X, and the urban struggle for civil rights of the Black Panthers. Carmichael has been somewhat forgotten in the pantheon of leaders from that period. That is until now, until Peniel Joseph's new biography, Stokely, A Life. Peniel Joseph is a professor of history at Tufts University, and it is my pleasure to welcome him to the program today to talk about Stokely Alive. Life. Peniel, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Hey, thank you for having me.
0: Great to have you here. In looking at the vast panoply of the civil rights movement in the 60s and into the early 70s, how important is Stokely Carmichael in that picture?
1: Well, I think he's crucially important. One of the things that I argue in Stokely Alive Life is that when we think about these watershed icons who who really traversed the global stage in the 1960s in terms of Martin Luther King, Malcolm. But when we think about globally, we think about people like Gandhi, um, Kwame Nkrumah, others. Um, Stokely is right there with Malcolm and Martin in the American context, this unacknowledged trio, Um, because he's the only major black power uh, icon and revolutionary who was also a day-to-day civil rights organizer and activist in the South, on the ground level. So even Malcolm X was not um, getting arrested in Mississippi and Alabama. Um, he knows Malcolm, but he has, actually spends more time with Martin Luther King Jr., and he becomes big good friends with Martin Luther King Jr. So he's a sit-in activist. He's a freedom rider along with John Lewis, who becomes chairman of SNCC. Stokely is, of course, later chairman of SNCC, but he's also um, somebody who's organizing with Fannie Lou Hamer, um, he searches for the bodies of Schwarner, Cheney, and Goodman the night they go missing. So there's an extraordinary story behind black power, which no one wants to acknowledge.
0: And he comes at it from somewhat of a different place, from the Caribbean where his parents were from, growing up in the Bronx, going to Bronx High School of Science. He comes at it from a place that is different from sort of the Southern slavery experience.
1: Yeah, he, he, he comes out of it from a Caribbean, Pan-African experience. Um, he, he, he's he's going to imbibe both that tradition, but also a predominantly um, white left tradition that's coming out of Bronx science, Jewish liberals and Marxists and progressives. Um, he's in their study circles. He's marching in pro-Israel marches in the 1950s. He's also imbibing a black socialist and social democratic tradition from Bayard Rustin, um, the openly gay, brilliant organizer who organizes the March on Washington, had been a peace activist, um, traveled to Africa, traveled to India, had been, a, had, had been incarcerated for being a conscientious objector during World War II, and had schooled Martin Luther King Jr. on nonviolence by sneaking into Montgomery in 1955. So when we think about Stokely, by the time the sit in start, February 1st, 1960, he's an organizer. He's been organizing garment workers. He's been organizing in Harlem as a teenager, So he's arrested for the first time in 1961 on June 8th, and he's going to spend about 40 days in Mississippi's worst prison farm, Parchman Penitentiary, and he's going to celebrate his 20th birthday in prison, the first of 27 arrests between June 8th, 1961 and June 16th, 1966. So there's an extraordinary story here of somebody who's a day-to-day organizer and activist, Howard University student. He graduates with his degree in philosophy, um, he's a friend, um, and he's mentored by Bayard, uh, not just Bayard Rustin, but Bob Moses, um, the, the, the bespectacled, mm-hmm. very quiet and brilliant um, genius like SNCC organizer, uh, and, and people like Ella Baker, who's the founder of SNCC. So he's imbibing all these traditions, but he's also influenced by Malcolm X. He first meets Malcolm um, October 30th, 1961, when Malcolm debates Bayard Rustin at Howard University. So he's, he's, he's brilliant. He tests into Bronx Science High School, in the eighth grade, um, before affirmative action, he's one of eight black students in a class of 300. And when you, over 300, uh, class of 1960, and when you interview um, folks from Bronx Science, he was really the most popular student uh, there. So he's just absolutely brilliant, charismatic, sensitive, um, but also this agitator and this organizer, but also an intellectual.
0: It's interesting because many think of him as a bridge between the nonviolence of Dr. King and certainly his Black Power speech in 1966 and the anger of Malcolm X and the Black Panthers. In fact, he was also a powerful bridge, as you talk about, to the progressive left community.
1: Yeah, he was definitely a powerful bridge. I mean, he had grown up around progressive lefties. He he was... It's, it's very important to stress that Stokely when he's 15, 16, 17 years old, is being invited to the dinner parties of people who are connected to the Communist Party, people who are Marxists, people who are socialists. Many of them were Jewish progressives. He understands that tradition. So when he goes into SNCC and SNCC recruits um, um, these white students, he knows how to talk to white students. You know, he can talk philosophy. He can talk Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, So he's, he's a very important example to people who are members of the National Student Association, the Students for a Democratic Society. Um, Tom Hayden um, talks uh, very much about how influential Stokely was for him. And, so, and Tom Hayden was the leader of the Students for a Democratic Society, one of the writers of the Port Huron Statement. So he, he's very, very much influential. The irony is that by 1966, he starts to say that white activists should, should organize in their own communities, right? So he starts to, once different people start dying, including a good friend of his who's white, Jonathan Daniels in Alabama, He starts saying it's too dangerous for them to organize alongside black folks, but also that they're ducking their duty to try to transform racism in white communities, which is the problem in American democracy.
0: Did he have concerns with respect to the civil rights movement itself that in some ways it was going to be co-opted or at the very least lose its focus by getting into some of these other areas, including the opposition to the war in Vietnam and social and economic justice?
1: Well, you know, he, I don't think he thought it was going to lose his focus. I mean, he becomes one of the biggest anti-war activists by 1966. He actually pushes Martin Luther King Jr. to the left on, on the war in Vietnam. He comes out against the war in a muscular way before King and before Muhammad Ali. And we see it in the FBI papers and the White House papers and the way in which his, the surveillance increases not only because of black power, but also because of his anti-war activism. I tell you what, though, he does get discouraged by the lack of small-D democracy in the United States. So Mississippi, 1964, is a turning point when Fannie Lou Hamer and black sharecroppers are prevented from sitting in at the Democratic National Convention, even though they're the the legitimate delegates and representatives of the state of Mississippi by Democratic Party rules. Once, Once that happens, Stokely turns further left and tries to organize independent black politics in Lowndes County, Alabama, Lowndes County Freedom Organization, sharecroppers in the buckle of the Alabama Black Belt. And they're going to be nicknamed the Black Panther Party, and they're going to provide inspiration for the Black Panthers that we'll see in Oakland, California, and Stokely will be connected to that. The Black Panther Party um, um, fails to to, to win in 1966 in May uh, because of just shenanigans that are going on and just illegal voter fraud Uh, by the hands of uh, predominantly white plantation owners. That's really going to push him further uh, left. Um, So when we think about civil rights, he starts to believe that nonviolence, which he had always upheld as a tactic, would not work in a country that was hopelessly bankrupt in terms of its its politics and its morality vis-a-vis black people.
0: When he made his famous Black Power speech in 1966, what did he mean by it at the time?
1: At the time, it's June 16, 1966, he still committed to a version and vision of radical democracy. So for him, Black Power, when he's making that speech, means radical, social, political, cultural self-determination. He's saying that Black people should be uh, in a position of power um, to decide their own goals, their ambitions, um, their futures, and their fate. Um, Over time, and even in the course of that year, he's going to expand that meaning to talk about black power and human rights, black power and the Vietnam War, and black power and anti-imperialism. And I think the biggest impact he's going to have on the white left is going to occur in October of 1966 when he speaks before a massive um, audience of over 10,000 at Berkeley, University of California um, in the Greek theater uh, outside. And he talks about black power, white privilege, but especially the war in Vietnam and American democracy and what what young activists need to do. It's a really extraordinary speech and provides a template for the Black Panther Party, for Students for a Democratic Society, for the kind of really revolutionary anti-imperialism third-world politics that we're going to see in 67, 68, and 69.
0: By 67, 68, he's talking about armed revolution, a far cry from nonviolence.
1: Yeah, he is. He, he, what's interesting about Stokely Carmichael, and you see this in the evolution even before he becomes Kwame Toure, and he takes that name after the Ghanaian, former Ghanaian president, Kwame Toure, and the, 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 the Guinean president, um, Sekou Toure. So there's Ghana, and then there's Guinea in there. And what's interesting is that he is undergoing a political evolution because of the circumstances that are happening externally. Um, we have to remember 67, 68, these are years of decolonization and global upheaval. Uh, Stokely travels to Cuba, uh, the London Dialectics of Liberation Conference. So there's Allen Ginsberg there, TLR James. Travels to Cuba with Fidel Castro. He meets up with him there. Um, he's in Vietnam and has lunch and meets up with Ho Chi Minh. Um, he goes to China for a couple of weeks and he's with Shirley Graham Du Bois, W.B. Du Bois' widow. Um, and then finally, he's, he's also in Conakry, Guinea and meets up with people like Emil Cabral, who's a revolutionary from Guinea-Bissau, um, Cape Verde, um, Sekou Touré, the president of Guinea, and then Kwame Nkrumah, who's the former president of Ghana, who's really the post-war period's biggest, most popular Pan-Africanist. Um, he goes to Tanzania and meets up with Julius Nyerere. He goes to Paris, Stockholm. He meets Jean-Paul Sartre. I mean, it's very heady stuff. And he, in, in Algeria, he meets up with the FLN, which are the Algerian revolutionaries who are now in power, and they're talking to him about revolution. So he's actually meeting revolution. He meets representatives from the African National Congress, which is Mandela's group, and Mandela's in prison, of course, in 67 on Robben Island. So he's meeting revolutionaries, and he's coming to the conclusion that there is a revolution going on globally, and that the race riots in the United States are actually urban upheavals and urban insurrections that are a prelude to political uh, uh, revolution and rebellion. So he starts to argue that, yes, armed insurrection is what's needed because black people in the United States are in the belly of the beast. But within the historical context, it makes perfect sense because even American officials were thinking that the United States was going to be at the precipice of race war when you think about 67, 68.
0: How exactly did he see in that historical context the nexus between what he was encountering in the rest of the world, particularly leftist movements, the Pan-African movement, all of that, and what he saw happening in the U.S. at that point?
1: I think he thought they were all tied in, and I think that's when it's interesting. The first big speech that talks about capitalism, that talks about systems, world systems, is going to be in London at the Dialectics of Liberation Conference. In, in, in July of 1967. He had traveled to uh, Puerto Rico in January of that year and met up with Puerto Rican revolutionaries who wanted independence. But it's in London where he starts to say, look, the United States is part of this world system. And he, he makes an argument in London that it's not a world system promoting democracy. It's a world system that is promoting imperialism and it's masquerading as democracy and freedom. So from that perspective, he's saying that what's going on in London and New York City is connected to Dar es Salaam, it's connected to Paris, it's connected to Latin America and all these different struggles. And what he tries to do during his five-month international tour is establish new networks with revolutionaries. I mean, one one important um, stop is going to be in Cuba because they're having the Organization of Latin American Solidarity in Cuba. And what's interesting is many... Many different countries offer him sanctuary, including Algeria. He doesn't take them up on it. He's going to take up um, um, Guinea uh, on, on that offer. But uh, the, the offer that the Algerians extend to Stokely is later going to be extended to Eldridge Cleaver and the Black Panthers. And for about a year and a half, Stokely's organizing the Panthers as prime minister as well. So it's an interesting. He, he's seeing the connections. But it, the argument that I make, and I think when you look at the chapters on the international section, He's making these connections, so it's not sort of just a rhetorical move. He's actually meeting with um, heads of state and and their um, support staff, and they're they're organizing and trying to link that in with first SNCC and then the Black Panthers and then eventually his own group, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party.
0: Were there those in the civil rights movement in america that thought that his efforts were undercutting some of the broad-based support that the movement had had earlier
1: yeah absolutely i mean you know there's an argument that's going to be made that black power undercuts the civil rights movement it becomes the evil twin um that shatters some kind of consensus um i would argue that the reality is that there was never a consensus there was always um, um a black critique a radical critique of the civil rights movement and that when we think about black power and civil rights, there were some activists who straddled both fences. So um, black power just opens up a Pandora's box that always was um, going to be open because it talked about things like um, r- real, real equity and outcomes. So it was more than about political legislation, but about issues of poverty. Um, black power rights were talking about prisons in the 1960s, even before we, we faced this 21st century mass incarceration crisis that Michelle Alexander uh, describes as the new Jim Crow, um, black powerites were talking about prison reform, right? So what's interesting is that black power has a fundamental structural critique of race and class inequality, and there were some black power feminists who had a gendered critique, too. So it just becomes very, very interesting that what black power does, even as it's accused of undercutting some kind of consensus, it actually just speaks boldly about um, existing structural inequalities in the United States, that the civil rights movement was either not addressing or just glossing over and thinking somehow they would take care of themselves. And even though Dr. King disagrees with the term black power, he says it's too violent, Dr. King becomes um, part of that revolutionary anti-imperialist movement by 1967, breaks with the Lyndon Johnson White House, and him and Stokely, and this is something that I write about in the book, which is rarely mentioned, Um, They headline a massive, the biggest anti-war demonstration up until that point in American history, um, which was uh, really yesterday, was the anniversary 47 years ago, uh, yesterday um, at the United Nations with Dr. Benjamin Spock, Harry Belafonte, Dr. King, and Stokely is there too, speaking about the Vietnam War as a racist war. Um, King is coming out against the war. King first came out against the war 11 days earlier at the Riverside Church in New York and comes out more forcefully that day. But he, he actually calls up Stokely two weeks later in Atlanta and, and tells him he's going to give his biggest anti-war speech at Ebenezer. And Stokely says he's going to be in the first row. And there's footage of Stokely Carmichael leading a standing ovation for King um, April uh, 30th, uh, 1967, at Ebenezer Baptist after King comes out against the war. So it's really an amazing story. And there's there, if you if you go back to the time, King is being criticized by both the left and right because of coming out against the war. And some conservative commentators are calling King and Stokely Carmichael the Batman and Robin of the new left and the the Black Revolution. And and it's it's there. It's it's amazing.
0: When he goes to Africa, almost as an expatriate, as Kwame Ture. To what extent does he do that because of his own evolving politics? And to what extent, as many feel, he was kind of driven out, hounded out of the country? And, and you uncovered some of this in those FBI files.
1: Yeah, he becomes Kwame Toure. It's a natural evolution. And at the same time, he's, it's, he's pushed out of the country and he's pulled towards Africa. So the pushing out is certainly there's death threats. There's huge FBI um, surveillance and harassment and I would say it's not just the FBI's counterintelligence program or the Pro program that um, did illegal surveillance against the Black Panthers and um, against black uh, nationalists and black powerites, um, and also people like King and others. It, it's really the whole national security infrastructure, including the White House, that unleashes surveillance against uh, Kwame Ture. Um, you know, so when he's in Paris, when he's in Africa, I mean, he's always under surveillance. So. Certainly, there's that. I think if he had stayed in the United States, he wouldn't have survived. Um, So his life is in danger. But there's also the pull of Africa. He's going to make the argument that um, Africa is the natural land base um, of black folks in the United United States and around the world, so that there's no way they could be safe in the United States. You can't secure Alabama or any of the uh, 48 contiguous states or the other two states. So he's going to make the argument that if there's a United States of Africa, and he's getting this from Nkrumah, one army, one leader, one currency, it's going to provide a land base for political liberation globally. So that becomes the argument.
0: And in many ways, he saw blacks in the U.S. as part of almost an African diaspora.
1: Absolutely. He, he always says that we are African people, whether you're from um, um, you know, Scottsdale, um, Alabama, Alabama, uh, to, to Nova Scotia, New Orleans to Nigeria, you know, Haiti to Harlem. He's going to say um, you, are, you are an African people. He dies believing that he's, he's an African, you know, so he always answers the phone ready for revolution, but he, he always says that we are African people.
0: And talk a little bit about the 30 years kind of after the movement starts to fade away, long after King and Malcolm are gone, both at 39, and he goes on for another 30 some odd years.
1: Yeah, he lives another 30 years. He dies of prostate cancer November 15, 1998, at the age of 57. Um, he becomes a, really an organizer for a pan-African revolution, but a pan-African revolution that's definitely very sectarian, and, and meaning that he, he believes that the political thought of Kwame Nkrumah and Sekou Toure and Krumah Toureism holds the key to a unification of Africa, and those reverberations will lead to bigger revolutionary developments. So there's going to be splits among Pan-Africanists. There's not going to be a large swath of Pan-Africanists who believe in encrumism to raise them. So he's organizing an All-African People's Revolutionary Party. Um, they, they do have some success on certain college campuses in the United States, and they have other um, 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 areas uh, around the world where there are people who are part of the AAPRP. But certainly his, his the spotlight recedes because he leaves the United States. He comes back on regular speaking tours but the political climate has changed. So many of his former comrades and colleagues in SNCC, for example, are elected officials, like Marion Barry is mayor of Washington, D.C., and some of the people we've been in with SNCC, Cortland Cox, Ivan Donaldson, they're, they're, they're part of um, um, the Barry administration. So, you know, things have changed. Jesse Jackson, who's somebody who, who he knew uh, very well, um, is a major civil rights leader, but they've pragmatically adapted to basically neoliberalism and the decline of the heyday of the black power movement and the civil rights era, he, he never does. I mean, he continues to say that um, the contradictions of American capitalism and racial, political, economic inequality is going to lead to some kind of conflagration and some kind of revolution and transformation. So in that way, he, he, he remains um, very consistent. And at the same time, he remains somebody who people sort of put in a box as this anachronistic uh, revolutionary who... Has, has held on to these dreams of a liberated uh, future long past their expiration date.
0: And what is his legacy today in Africa and within the Pan-African movement?
1: Well, I think it's a strong ne- legacy. I mean, I think he's, he's known and recognized as really one of the foremost Pan-Africanists of the post-war period, and certainly he's recognized as both Kwame Ture and Stokely Carmichael and the person who popularized the term um, black power. I think it's it's definitely um, a strong legacy. And in some ways, it might be a more vital legacy than it, it is right now in the United States. I think one of the things that's been lost is the fact that uh, Stokely Carmichael Kwame Ture was such a huge uh, figure, even though he's a global figure, he's also an American figure as well, somebody who impacts um, different presidential administrations, who's, who's um, you know, at every major development during the civil rights movement, heroic period during the second half between 60 and 65. And certainly black power is hugely important because it it provides a context for transformational black identity, this idea that black people were um, uh, proud people, dignified people, they were human beings, but also that they had the right to try to transform in a revolutionary manner democratic institutions in American society. And we see everything from black studies movements uh, black student unions, black elected officials, uh, the black arts movement, um, this whole idea of black is beautiful. Um, Stokely Carmichael was the person who was popularizing that um, nationally uh, when that was considered really just revolutionary, this idea of saying black power defiantly, um, whether you're on Meet the Press or you know the cover of Esquire magazine. Um, so he really becomes black power's rock star, somebody who's got enormous charisma, um, unbelievably handsome, and, and somebody who's hugely, hugely articulate as well.
0: Peniel Joseph, the book is Stokely a Life. It's just out from Basic Books. Panil, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.